This is episode 62 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the prolific magic historian Henry Ridgely Evans. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 62. Well, hello, my friends. Um, Just really quick, I've been diligently working on the next episode of the podcast, which is going to be about Aloise Kastner, and I'm very excited about that. But it's taking a little longer than I expected. So rather than have several more weeks of nothing, you know, no podcasts, I figured I'd pop on and just share a story or two with you. So that's what this is about. First, a big congratulations to everyone who won items in the most recent Magic History auctions. Uh, There were some amazing items. I admit I was drooling over the steel trunk owned and used by Levant. Um, that would look so cool underneath that big poster, but uh, I don't know who won that, but congratulations. There were a few small items I thought were cool, but I missed, honestly missed most of the auctions because I had a virtual magic gigs both days that uh, we had auctions recently. So that's life. So a few years ago, I received a curious email. It was, it was from a group in Washington, D.C. that was putting on a TEDx conference. And if you're not familiar with TED or TEDx, you really should look them up. They're an amazing group that puts on conferences and has speakers of all kinds and occasionally entertainers as well. Well, they contacted me and the conversation went like this. We heard you were uh, a magic historian. And we didn't even know there was such a thing, but we knew the moment we heard, we wanted to invite you to speak at our conference, which, you know, to me, that's really cool. And it was quite an honor to be asked. So I personally know a ton of people that want to do a TED Talk. The fact that somebody asked me to do one was really cool. And how do you go about it? Well, there's lots of different ways, but I actually let them coach me. And I'm going to tell you the whole story. I will say this give you a big warning. It may not be as easy as you think. Um, I was going to speak on magic history, obviously, but they only gave me eight minutes to speak. Eight minutes to speak about magic history. And, you know, you can tell one story in eight minutes, but what I had in mind was a big overview of magic history. So that was a lot harder. And then they came to me and they go, Hey, by the way, could you also do a trick with no added time? And on top of that, my speech had to be approved. There are certain things you have to do to have a speech considered a Ted talk. So, and by the way, just to let you know, there are some books available um, on Amazon that cover that very topic. So if you're interested in doing a Ted talk or a TEDx talk, I'd encourage you to, um, to look up some of the books on Amazon and find out, you know, what constitutes a TED Talk, the, the structure that you need to have. So if you're pitching somebody about it, you're ahead of the game. Just a little bit of advice. It just so happened that they, they liked my speech and they tweaked it a little bit. But, you know, overall, they liked the speech and they asked me to come in and do a test run at the theater. 
And the theater that I had to do this in was Lisner Auditorium in Washington, D.C. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but it just so happens that I saw none other than Harry Blackstone Jr. perform at Lisner Auditorium. So it was very cool. And here I was backstage and in a dressing room that very likely could have been Harry Jr. So it was pretty cool. And then, you know, walking out on stage, I'm like, wow, this is this is what it was when he, you know, walked out on stage. This is what he saw. Uh, it was all pretty surreal. Uh, the uh, The run through went fine. And that's also the day we find out where we are on the lineup. And it was it was an odd spot. It was like the fourth speaker of the day. There were three speakers before me, obviously. And the person before me, sadly, was uber dull. He was really, really dull. That's who I had to follow. <laughs> that's life. Now, on the day of the talk, I chose to wear my costume from my Victorian show because basically I just wanted a sense of theatricality and I'd also be surrounded by some really big images of magic posters on a uh, PowerPoint so I just thought it would be you know cool to have that nice connection the visual connection with their dress and mine and, and I also wanted to stand out from the other speakers who frankly I knew were going to be dressed pretty casually the talk um, that particular day, like I said, eight minutes talk and a magic trick, the talk went fast. Uh, it seemed in my head, it seemed like it went by in like in two minutes. But um, <laughs> it's the trick that uh, I really want to get to, which is uh, kind of ironic. So I chose a wonderful creation by my buddy Billy Diamond. And it's hard to describe. Uh, it's kind of a utility device, but it's um, it's you make something disappear and it appears inside a lamp and a light bulb. So, you know, like milk to light bulb or dollar bill to light bulb. It's, it's versatile in that regard. And his is without question the best version I've ever seen. So on this particular day. Uh, I knew I had a winner on my hands, and we were going to borrow a dollar bill from the audience and, you know, cause it to vanish and reappear inside this light. Oh, but wait a second. <laughs> I have to go back to the day before the dress rehearsal because uh, I'm, I'm explaining that I'm going to borrow a dollar bill from the audience and then cause it to vanish. And you would have thought I just had a tantrum and cursed everybody out on the stage. Because they all looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, what? why? What, what's going on? And it never occurred to me. But they said, the audience out here tomorrow is going to be filled with mostly college students. None of whom have any money. <laughs> they all carried like rechargeable debit cards. Uh, but nobody had any cash. And I'm like, oh crap, what am I going to do? So <laughs> I'm thinking, well, surely somebody's going to have a dollar bill, somebody. And I'm like, you know, just in case, just in case somebody doesn't, I'm going to make sure there's a dollar bill out there. So I had a dollar bill. I gave it to the coordinator because her mom was in the audience and I, she gave it to the mom and we got it all covered. So, <laughs> so now back to the show. 
So um, here it is. It's my spot. I, uh, I borrow the bill. I tear it in half. I give half to her. The other half I take and cause it to vanish. And the moment it vanishes is when the, uh, the light goes out. And here's what uh, my little twist on this is when I open my hand to show uh, the vanished bill, I actually have in my fingers the glass filament from the bulb. So you make that connection with the uh, the light going out. And then my assistant, Denise, she takes the, uh, the lampshade off and lifts it up. And, and clearly underneath, you can see the bulb. And there inside the bulb is the, uh, the dollar bill. And, of course, the serial numbers match. And it was, it was great. It was great. So <laughs> uh, there was a, a break after... Um, after the next speaker, they went from me to the next speaker. And then, like I said, there was a break and gave us a chance to talk to some of the other speakers. And And I was surprised how uh, some of them were very welcoming and warm and others were a little standoffish. But looking back, I don't really think they were standoffish as much as they may just have been shy. And um, shyness and standoffishness can kind of uh, look the same. So you have to be careful how you make that judgment. I think they were probably just shy. We got plenty of photos that day, which was cool. And uh, now, several years after the talk, um, personally, I'd like to do another one, and I will, because I was a little green that day. Um, It was my first one, after all. Uh, Eight minutes to get in a story and a trick is not enough time. (laughs) I don't care what anybody says. And I'm sure I could have lobbied for longer. But uh, next time around, and like I said, there will be a next time, um, I'll get a little bit better time and um, I'll have more fun with the content. And I will pick a trick that doesn't require money. So there you go. Now, uh, that's that's wonderful and everything, but if you think that was the end of our day, that was the only, that was just the start of the day because we were in Washington D.C. and whenever I say we, it's me and my assistant Denise. We we uh, we go on these adventures and we've done this many times. Um, so here we are, we're in Washington DC, we get out of our costumes and she's like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you asked. We're going uh, to find a cemetery. She's like, okay, who are we looking for? And I'm like, we're looking for the grave of Henry Ridgely Evans. The, he was an author and a magic historian who once lived in Washington, D.C., and he's buried there in D.C. And I found the cemetery, and, uh, oh, this is great. So let me give you a little bit of background about Henry Ridgely Evans. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1861, and though he was born in Pennsylvania, it seems he was raised in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. He came from a very large family of six other siblings, Uh, It was around 1878, according to Evans himself, that he attended a performance at the Old National Theater presented by Robert Heller. So cool. This performance so captivated the young man that he instantly became enthralled with magic. Or as we say in the profession, he was bitten by the magic bug. A few months later, in March of 1879, Evans sat in the audience at Ford's Theater for the first appearance of Harry Keller in the nation's capital. Henry Ridgely Evans went to school uh, and, uh, intending to become a lawyer, but at some point changed professions and became a journalist. His ability to write and record the news was certainly a benefit to us in the magic profession. 
Evans became one of the early magic historians before that kind of thing even was popular. He was a prolific writer of books on magic and magazine articles. His most famous book is probably The Old and the New Magic, which was published around 1906. Uh, he would also write uh, a lot of non-magic books. Uh, I, I discovered that there's uh, um, a much sought-after book called Old Georgetown on the Potomac that he wrote in 1933. And I had seen a copy available on Amazon for over $1,000. So, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Now, in, um, in 1892, Evans marries a woman named Florence. They had no children and lived at 1430 V Street Northwest. This was in 1900. Later in 1930, he and Florence were again living in D.C., and this time in an apartment on I Street Northwest. And I can find no record of Henry living in Baltimore, at least prior to 1930, though some uh, sources claim he worked for a number of Baltimore newspapers. When Harry Keller was touring with Paul Valadon, it was Henry Ridgely Evans who wrote an article for Stanion's Magic that said his prediction for the successor to Keller would be Thurston. Imagine that. Valadon was still touring with Keller, and here's Evans, and he throws out his vote for Thurston, who, as far as we know, wasn't even in the running. History proved Evans correct, as Thurston indeed was the successor. Houdini has an interesting connection to Evans. In the Christopher biography, Houdini, The Untold Story, it describes an incident where Houdini slams Evans in the Conjurer's Monthly magazine for his new book, The Old and the New Magic, apparently. Evans reprinted a description or expose on how the handcuff escape was done, and it more than irked Houdini. But on page 210 of Houdini, the biography by Ken Silverman, he describes Houdini as having compiled a history of magic that he called History Makers in the World of Magic and gave it to Evans, who was writing a similar book. And I suppose this was to be a combined project as Houdini remained involved in the editing part of the book. This event would have taken place around 1916, 1917. And I don't honestly know if the book was published. I'm going to say no. The next magic book that Evans published was The History of Conjuring and Magic, which he published in 1928. So there's a big gap there. The book does not include Houdini's name as far as co-author, so I guess that wasn't it. A side note, David Price's book, uh, Magic Pictorial History of Conjurers in the Theater, often refers to Evans' writings. It appears Evans remained a hobbyist performer, but Dr. Henry Ridgely Evans would go on to become a valued writer of magic history. He wrote Magic and Its Professors in 1902, The Old and the New Magic in 1906, Adventures in Magic in 1927, History of Conjuring and Magic in 1928, A Master of Modern Magic, The Life and Adventures of Robert Houdin in 1932, some rare and old books on Conjuring and Magic, 1943. Evans died at Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore on March 29, 1949, and he is buried in Oak Hill Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Now, if that's not enough, I'm going to share with you a story from Henry Ridgely Evans' life. 
It seems that a young Henry Evans was fascinated with the book, The Arabian Nights, as a child. Um, He even slept with that book under his pillow. Years later, he came upon an article about Robert Houdin in an issue of Harper's Magazine. And then in 1877, Professor Hoffman put out his book, Modern Magic, and this took Henry Evans over the edge. He devoured the book and its material. And he soon found a copy of Houdin's biography that he also read through and through. While attending Columbian College in Washington, D.C., one of his schoolmates encouraged him to put on a show and even offered his home as the venue for such a performance. His friend was Edward Dent, and the home was called The Oaks. Today it's known as Dumberton Oaks and is a research library and collection institute administered by the trustees of Harvard University. But in the 1800s, it was a private residence and quite an impressive mansion. In fact, it still is. Now, apparently on this day, 200 children from the area came to see the show put on by the amateur conjurer, Henry Ridgely Evans. And as is often the case for a new performer, poor Evans got cold feet. In fact, he got more than cold feet. (laughs) His feet wouldn't even move. He was paralyzed with fear. The kids in the audience got wind of his condition, and like wild animals, they could smell blood, and they were ready to pounce. But Evans somehow regained his composure and presented a fairly decent show, with one exception. His card star accidentally released early and cards shot everywhere when they weren't supposed to. Uh, it was, it brought an end to the show, and likely it probably brought an end to Henry Ridgely Evans' career as a professional magician, if you can say that. Fortunately for us, his fascination with magic remained, and he became a very prolific writer on the topic, as I've mentioned. Now, it just so happens the Oaks, or Dumberton Oaks, is next door to the cemetery where Evans is buried. So on that cold, rainy day after the TEDx talk that we did, uh, when we went out to the cemetery, and let me tell you, we went all over that cemetery trying to find Evans's grave. It was wet. It was, oh, it was, here's the thing. There's sidewalks made of shale. Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know. But when they get wet, they are extremely slippery. And uh, we're doing all we can not to kill ourselves as we're walking around this cemetery. And we we did find Evans's grave. It was very cool uh, to finally have found it. And um, I've got some pictures on my blog if you want to check those out. But but we did find it. And then, as I said, as we were leaving, we found out that this place, uh, the Oaks or Dumberton Oaks, it was right next door. So that was the place where Evans did that show all, all those many years ago. And uh, it was so cool. Now, I've noticed that Henry Ridgely Evans, his writings appeared in many periodicals during their day. And recently, going through his book, The Old and the New Magic, I thought it actually might be fun to take some of his stories that he talks about both in the books and the magazines and use them as a long-running segment in the future Magic Detective podcasts. So um, I'm going to use that as a, uh, not as a feature, not the overarching feature, but just a a special segment in some of the upcoming podcasts. And we'll see how that plays out. I think it could be very, very interesting. So again, uh, folks, the next 
podcast is 63. That's going to be, with any luck, on Aloise Kastner once I finish the research on that. I hope you enjoyed this particular podcast, uh, Magic Detective Podcast. If you did like the podcast, do me a favor and like it in whatever way your podcasting device allows. And uh, if nothing else, please pass on the word to others you think that might be interested in listening to my little podcast on magic history. So until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and be safe.